We got to question seven. Uh, we've looked at the seven main questions over the last 11 weeks, uh, or 10 weeks, I guess, the first six. <coughs> Developing a Christian worldview. How do we think like Jesus? And that means thinking biblically. Um, just a, a little personal note, this is always, ever since I read this book back in, oh, geez, it's been 15, 20 years ago, it's always been a nice thing to remember, so you always keep focused. And when you're in conversations with people who either are seeking their faith or don't have one, uh, knowing these questions and the answers to the questions from a Christian worldview are very, very helpful. Uh, you can think on your feet a little bit better. If you, you think about what we've looked at so far, you know, question one had to do with does God exist? And obviously we don't talk about that a lot in worship because we kind of assume yes, and we did answer it that way. But that a lot of people, that's one of the problems out there today. Do, does God exist or are there good reasons uh, to, to give? And we, we did some of those, and you can, all oh, these are on our website if you ever want to go back and, and look at them or even watch the services again. Um, so God exists, so what kind of a God? What's the nature of God? Uh, what is he like? Uh, what is it attributes, uh, how that comes in? And what's the nature and purpose of creation? Why, why did God create at all? Uh, we looked into that in question three. And what's the nature and purpose of humanity? That was four. You know, once you, again, usually we screw up humanity because we mess God up. We turn God into something he's not, and then we become something usually better than we really are, and that, that causes a problem. And then in question five was, what happens after we die? And we talked about how that's what the gospel is really about. It's what we celebrate now. That the whole idea is to that people are supposed to, by the power of the Spirit, realize that they are guilty before a holy God and, and look for the grace. And experiencing grace is essentially the way you start experiencing God's love. You can't experience His love without experiencing His grace first. And then they kind of go in tandem. Last week, we looked at uh, kind of a fun one, too. What spiritual authorities exist, looking at angels, demons, uh, the devil, how, how Jesus uh, deals with that and the Bible deals with that. So this is our last one, and it's kind of a, a neat uh, one. It's, you know, because a worldview, to help make sense of reality, which is what a worldview is supposed to do, and give you understanding of meaning and purpose and value, it must specify what truth is. So this is a big one. Uh, 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 and notice these aren't all mutually exclusive. You kind of build on each other and work with each other. What is truth or what isn't truth? And many colleges and universities today, and I see some here that have been through them or going through them, um, I'm not saying all, but many teach uh, the, uh, that objective truth does not exist, and we'll define that in a little bit. This is called relativism. <laughs> and there was a book written by Greg Kokel and Frank Beckwith back, that's been probably about the same time as uh, Thinking Like Jesus from Barna. Uh, it was called Relativism, and I thought, what a great title. That's the first part, but listen to this part. Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. What a cool title. It's out there still. I would recommend it. It's very well done. Uh, uh, t stands the test of time. <coughs> so... The truth that we're looking at, philosophically, there's different ways to look at truth. We're not going to get into that. It's, it's probably as boring to you as it is to me. But what is truth, it, we, it's called the correspondence view of truth. It sounds really big and falutin, but it's really just this. Truth is what corresponds to reality. It's not really that hard, right? Um, but sometimes philosophers make things harder <laughs> than they need to be. So if it is true, if it corresponds to reality, that relativism is true, that there's no objective truth, then there's really no such thing as wrong or right because you can't land the plane anyway. 
you hear that, well, your truth and my truth. You know, um, if there is no objective truth, that's really the way it works, and, and most of the time it either comes, how we come up with morals either comes from a bunch of people agreeing, this is the minority happen, happenstance, most of it comes with who has the most power. That usually is the way it works. So if there's no such thing as right and wrong, well, then clearly the idea of sin, which is moral crimes against God, is baseless because you can't say sin is around because there's nothing objective to point to. This is not what we believe, but it's out there. I, I'd say this is probably the majority view of, of the academic world. And if there's no sin, then you don't have a need for a Savior. There's nothing to be saved from. You see how quickly this logically falls into atheism and non-belief. It all starts with whether or not we think there's anything true. And Jesus' death and resurrection is death we just commemorated and what it was for. They're historically insignificant. It's kind of sad. Makes for a good movie. And personally meaningless. This is why even though we do talk about the freedom we have in our country and the Judeo-Christian moral principles and worldview even that it was begun, that's not always there right now. And I'm one that thinks let's keep trying to keep it there. And I, I mean, if we lose, we lose. But I don't think we stop. And we'd be very gracious about it because we're trying to get them to understand Jesus, not to say, oh, nana, nana, boo, boo, I'm right and you're wrong. Um, I, we are. It's funny, have you ever had somebody say, well, you think you're right? And I'm like, well, duh. Why would I be standing up for something I thought was wrong? That would be quite dull, wouldn't it? So objective truth, and we've had this before. I know a lot of teachers, This is if you've listened to me before, this actually comes from Greg Kokel, not me, same writer of that book, uh, Stand to Reason, just a very clear thinker. If you haven't gone through, I think we might do this on Wednesday nights starting in September for the adult class. He's got a new... Uh, updated version of the tactics book, uh, Tactics in Defending the Faith. It's just wonderful. Uh, a lot of you have already been through that, but I wouldn't mind going through it again. So we might do that. If you haven't read that book, read it uh, or wait for Wednesday nights and show up and we'll go through it together. But what's objective truth? Objective truth is true for everyone. And the way he does it is he uses, and we so we call this insulin truth. You know, if you think about, is it, does it correspond to reality that insulin helps diabetes? Well, yeah. And you can use whatever you want, right? You can use whatever you want. <laughs> and it, it only insulin works. We know that. Maybe they'll find something later, but it's just a good, and in, in you can come up with other analogies. Maybe you can think of a better one. But this is objective, too. It doesn't matter if I like it. It doesn't matter if I even know it, right? I mean, was insulin a cure for diabetes before they knew insulin was a cure for diabetes? Yeah. Truth's still there. It's objectively true for everyone. That's what we say the Bible is. That's what we say Jesus' words are. And we'll look at a lot of those words here in just a minute. Subjective true is true for the subject. We call it, and Coco calls this ice cream truth. I mean, I might think rhubarb crunch is the best ice cream. <laughs> I don't. It's like dirt crunch. Uh, <laughs> But you might think it's, and that's okay because it's a subjective. It's based on taste, opinion, uh, flavor. And that's, you, you think about if you move this into your religion, if you make ice cream truth part of what we preach and teach, you know, I can stand up here and say, for me, Jesus is the way. 
but for you, he might not be. Is that the way Jesus presented it? <laughs> you think they would have killed him if he did? <laughs> Why would you kill Mr. Rogers, right? Um, or the ice cream man, if you're going with the... This is the way you, we, what is objective and what is subjective? When we were talking with the liberty and the, you know, and be unified on all things essential and have liberty with things that are not essential, that's the same thing. We, some things we, we, we go to the mat for, these objective truths. That's what, what's in our statement of faith. So if you ever hear, and you probably hear other people in our church say that, it's like, well, is this an insulin truth or is this an ice cream truth? And I tell you what, almost any, in my opinion, church, uh, heated discussion, we don't have arguments, um, can be taken care of because one person is talking about insulin, the other one's talking about ice cream. Uh, be careful with that, you know. And in some denominations, you know, for us, as far as <coughs> some of the things other denominations or other religions even might see as essential, we don't see them as essential. Depends on how you look at the Bible. So, I hope that's kind of where it starts. So our foundational truth is the Bible, and we get it from the Bible itself. It claims that it's God-breathed. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And the, and the, the four are so-called teaching, reproof, correction, and training. Uh, teaching is kind of the knowledge. Reproof is essentially sin. You're sinning. Stop. Um, correction, you need to focus on God more. And training, okay, now not only do I know it, I can actually teach it. I can actually live it. I can actually convey it. And sometimes we call this the inspiration of Scripture. I don't know if that's quite correct because it's breathed. It's actually the expiration. <laughs> you know, it, it's theonopsis, such a cool word in Greek. It's God breathed out. And think about back how God created in Genesis 1. You know, it's not like we're saying God went <sighs> a whole bunch of times. It's, it's the words he said that matters, right? And you think about how was, we had that back in, in the third week, how was the world created and God said, you know, so this is, and God said this revelation. And how do we get it? Well, it was written by people who were directed by God. We, a very good scripture here is in Second Peter. No prophecy of scripture. And, 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 and I knew sometimes we get messed up with this word prophecy. Prophecy isn't primarily about telling the future, although it's in there, um, it's primarily about telling people to repent. <laughs> Every prophet, what do they come? You know, they don't come and say, yeah, everybody's doing great, good job, fist bump, see you later. Every prophet goes to call the people to repent of their wrongdoing. Prophecy is mostly about telling what God tells them to say. And now that we have all that we need in Scripture, there won't be a lot and there will never be more until the second coming of Scripture because we have what we need. So most of prophecy is just proclaiming the truth. I think that's what it means in, in 2 Corinthians as a, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12 of, of uh, the spiritual gifts. So no prophecy of Scripture comes from his own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I don't know what your version says, but it's kind of a cool analogy. It doesn't mean that he just, you know, he knocked them out and took his, their hand, and then they, well, you could do that with a chimpanzee or a monkey or whatever, you know. No, they, they used, you can read Luke, it's different than Matthew. You can read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which has a lot to do with the gospel, and you can read James, and it has a lot to do with the gospel, but they're different. They're to a different audience, written by different people, but they're all objectively true. So if one looks, and this is the 
objective evidence. If one looks diligently at the Bible, if you look at the manuscripts, the authorship, the consistency, the accuracy, if you really want to get into this, uh, Josh McDowell's evidence that demands the verdict one and two are, are wonderful. Uh, I think everybody should have those on our show. It's almost encyclopedic, uh, but it's, it's really good. If you look into this, if somebody's honest, there's really no doubt, no reason to doubt that it, it's clarity and it's authenticity. In fact, one of the biggest atheists that is popular is Bart Ehrman. He's written a couple books on that. He believes that we got what we were supposed to, and he's an atheist. He's like, they have, you can't honestly not think. Now, he doesn't agree with what they, the conclusions that the authors came to, but you know, I, I saw a YouTube of him. Somebody got up and said, well, we know these that we don't have, you know, the texts are, he's, oh, no, don't say that. <laughs> oh, no, this is, the, the Bible is more attested, this is an atheist. The Bible is more attested of, of textual accuracy than any other book, even close. He just doesn't believe what it teaches, which is a different subject, right? Uh, because even though we have objective evidence, we also want subjective evidence in the sense that the Holy Spirit coming and regenerating our heart because we desire to have a relationship with God through the power of the Spirit. And this is, uh, you already got this in the children's sermon, but you know, what was Jesus' view of Scripture? He always lifted the Old Testament as truth. He taught from it. He battled Satan with it. In fact, that was his main weapon. And he prepared his disciples to pen the New Testament. We'll look at that Scripture in a minute. So it's just as relevant today is when it was first written. One of the dullest things you can say is, well, it's an old book, so it may, well, what does it tell? It tells us who God is. It tells us how he's covenanted with us because it tells us who we are. It gives us those promises, and he, he comes himself to give us what we need. So I think, I don't know what happened there. That was a God thing. Maybe. I think God wants me to be done. <laughs> well, happy fourth. It would, no, I'm just, We'll try it again. If it doesn't one more time, I might just rip right on over there. Um, so what does the Bible say about truth? Uh, that's, again, we're looking, this is our objective evidence. What was Jesus' purpose? This is before Pilate. Um, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Yeah, they've had a conversation a little bit here already. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Truth was pretty important to Jesus. We'll get to that next line in a minute. But that is very important. I came to bear witness to the truth. And even the atheists that are honest will say this. Jesus thought he had it, right? As I said, we, we, it's, it's pretty much the gospel, right? Put all your eggs in the Jesus basket. That's what you do. If you're not doing that, you're really not a Christian church. So that was his purpose. And his essence, what's he like? What's his character, his isness? Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We understand he's the source of eternal life. We understand he's the path that we have to follow. But he's also saying, I am the one that defines truth. You aren't. I mean, think about it. If this book is true, and we think it is, what's the defense of an atheist at the foot of God after death? I've heard Bertrand Russell say, well, you, I would tell God kind of smugly in a debate that uh, he hasn't given me enough evidence. So you, you've got Bertrand Russell that thinks he doesn't have enough evidence, and Jesus said, you've got plenty. Who's you, who you going to go with? I mean, Russell was smart, but he's not smart. Again, back to that. And we talk about freedom. 
true freedom is only through Jesus. You have this, it's written on halls, they plagiarize this and leave half of it out. But if you abide in my word, that is the criteria. You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. No one, no matter how free their country or municipality is, is truly free if they aren't abiding in God's word. At least that's what Jesus said. And we have plenty of examples of that. You know, The idea that even the most rich person sometimes says that what's my purpose? You know, Christians shouldn't be running around trying to find themselves, right? Because we are in Christ. You know, and I've noticed everywhere I go, there I am. That's philosophical, but that does answer the question, right? So it's freedom. You get this on, you know, know the truth and the truth will set you free. They leave out the fact that this was come from Jesus. And he said, you have to know my word first. Then you'll be set free. Set free from the bondage of sin. Set free for living for Christ. And many people miss this point, right? I think that's out there. It'd be interesting to do a survey. Maybe Barna's done one. People, I think most people, even Christians, view moral truth as restrictive rather than freeing them to achieve God's purposes. You know, people, well, yeah, I'll go to worship, you know, whether I like it or not. I'll go to a Bible study whether I like it or not. I'll serve in the church whether I like it or not. I'll pray to God whether I like it or not. I think he wants us to like it, folks. And that's the key. This isn't hard, but you probably, probably know it. If you in your faith can truly say objectively that you desire to do the things God wants to do and you have joy when those happen, now you got a good connection. Which includes when you mess up, you go to the foot of the cross with confidence, not because of us, but because of him and his promises. So we miss this. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, do we really have to sin to have fun? I mean, that's out there. We were talking about a little bit in the study. You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to go to heaven. That'll be boring. If, if, if you look in the Bible when people experienced God in a real way, Isaiah, John in Revelation, Peter at the shores of the Galilee and after a great catch of fish, miraculous catch, Tell you one thing, they're not bored. Isaiah in the throne wasn't, wasn't like, well, whatever, we'll be about done. <laughs> he's, he's on his belly because he's experiencing God as an unclean person with unclean lips. He needs redeemed. He knows that. That's what, if you truly experience God for the first time, the first thing you will feel is guilt and the want to get rid of it. That's why when you preach this stuff, make sure that people realize you have to repent to follow Jesus. You're not going to get there any other way. You can know about him because he loves you. You can know about him because you think he's going to help you with your problems. That's all wonderful, but you're not going to know him until you repent. And again, I think we need to, you know, sometimes I know we, we, there's things we don't do. There's a lot of thou shalt nots in the Bible. But, um, and I don't think we go out of our way just to be flippantly annoying to everybody. Yeah, I'm having fun, you know. I mean, but enjoy your life, folks. Enjoy your, your time uh, in the word, enjoy your time with other believers. Enjoy the, uh, the worship and the prayer. And I mean, it, this is, you know, we're commanded to do this, you know, and we're commanded in Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you didn't get it, again, I say rejoice. Uh, 
And I don't think it's hard, right? If you've had a mountaintop experience, did somebody have to come and buy and tell you, you need to enjoy this? That's not hard, is it? The problem is it, it ends up stopping. I do think eventually they'll continue, but it won't be in this world, it'll be in the next. And that's kind of what John 17, 17 is saying. It tells us about what true truth is. That's a Francis Schaeferism. I don't know if you've read Francis Schaefer, but he called it true truth. Because <laughs> people were messing around with truth so much, it's like uh, maybe we should have the tolerant tolerance. <laughs> they keep moving that word around too. But sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is Jesus praying to the Father. Sanctify them. That's being made holy, being made like Christ. And that's supposed to be a good thing. Jesus didn't come along and say, you know, this is really going to be a booger. You're not going to like doing this. Life is going to be eh. But just do it because it makes me happy. <laughs> no, he's like, you know, it, it's, it's this positive thing. It's this idea that our, our faith in Christ no matter what. And you even see the, the weird disciples getting beaten for Jesus and like praising God. I don't think I'm there yet, but I uh, haven't been beaten for Jesus yet, and I don't know what my first thought would be. Probably wouldn't be praise, and that's, I need to get there, right? We all need to get there. Not that we like the beating, but we like the Lord that helps us through it. So, the other thing is God has made truth abundantly accessible. The Bible is still the best-selling book in all the world, but it's among the least read and even less studied. Jesus came to it's the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to voice. So how many people who are of the truth don't listen to his voice? You know, This is a binary statement, as they say. There's a lot of these in the Bible. And you can say, well, what about this person and what about that person? We can talk about that. You can go to Acts 17 about, you know, God says, if you seek me, you will find me. God will find a way. But everybody it's, this is objective. It's not that it's okay. You know, you can follow Krishna if you're in India. You can call a Buddha if you're in China. You, you can follow Joseph Smith if you're in another place. No, we're supposed to follow Jesus because he's the only one that has the truth. If you don't follow him, the rest of it really doesn't matter. Now, God has protected and sealed his information for us. Again, children's sermon. The, the verse in John that has that we have easy. The Old Testament's easy. Just tell people, Jesus thought it was good. I think it's good. We're good. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's not the only scripture that says this, but this is kind of, you could trust the New Testament too because we had that in Second Peter. The Holy Spirit will carry people along. We have what we need. There are no lost Gospels because if they were Gospels, they would have been found. God would have saw to it. And remember who you is up here. I've seen people say this. Well, I don't need to study. He's going to teach me. This is not talking to you directly. Who's you in here? Anybody know? It's the apostles. This is in the upper room. You weren't there. I see there's some old people here, but nobody was around then. Right? Context, context, context. Good verse to remember, though. 1426. And he's gifted millions of talented people to teach the truth to others. You see this, Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. 
Let us use these. And he starts with probably the most important one. If prophecy, and again, I think that's proclaiming the faith, whether by sermon or just by one-on-one conversations, in proportion to our faith. Um, it's out there. Romans 15.4 is a great verse to remember, too. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So even though Jesus was talking to those apostles in John 14, 26, it still has application to us. We're not the ones that wrote it, but do we benefit from it? If you're interpreting the Bible, get the meaning first and then work on application. It's kind of like most men who put it together first and then read the instructions. I've only, I only did that 40 or 50 times. Now I read the instructions first. But it's the same thing. We, you need to know what's true before you start applying it. And that's part of the problem of some of the cultic things that happens today or just misguided theology that floats through every church. Colossians 1, this message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. You have everything you need. You just need to read it and study it and understand it and live it while being graciously have gratitude that, that it's been given to us. So, now telling his truth is not just for pastors and missionaries. That kind of a medieval practice has screwed the church up royally. But all who follow Jesus, we must testify to the truth and stand up to any deception. This is kind of the way Romans, this is a little later in Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. He's talking about the church there. In accord with G Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Everything to the glory of God. The, I don't have that verse up there, but 1 Peter 3.15 is a good one too. I don't know if you're called to go out and preach in Walmart. Uh, I've convinced myself I'm not. Uh, uh, had to go there after 18 months eventually. But, uh, but we are, first, you know, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ to anyone who asks you. That's, think about that. If somebody asked me, what would I say? If that coworker asked me, what would I, if that classmate asked me, if that neighbor asked me, if that friend, if that relative asked me, am I ready to tell why I believe, which should include the objective evidence of Jesus and the subjective appropriation of that as you experienced his grace? That we can all do, right? And then once in a while you get pretty prepared, you start to get cocky and start stepping out a little bit. So contrary to proper belief, Truth is not a private matter that changes with each individual or circumstance. You've heard the term that, that we, we, we have truth that changes, you know, subjectively all the time. Um, objective moral truth does not change, but we have to remember that the situation may dictate how moral truth is applied. You have to understand the morals first. Um, you've heard the term situational ethics, haven't you? That's not necessarily bad. Depends what you mean by that, which is the first tactic question. Do you mean that ethics change, that actual moral laws change with that? No, that's not good. 
but how we apply them. And here's a couple examples. I don't know if you've read The Hiding Place by Cory Ten Boom or Tramp for the Lord. Cory Ten Boom <coughs> grew up in the Netherlands as a Christian, and obviously during the World War II occupation, they decided to hide Jews so they wouldn't be exterminated by the Nazi regime. So they had a hiding place, hence the name of the book. And when the SS knocked on the door and they said, are you harboring Jews? She went directly against the word of God. She lied. Situational ethics. Is it a greater sin to say to, oh, yep, they're right there, or to lie to an evil person? I don't think that's that hard. We still have to apply it. This is what we call, it's really not a moral dilemma. This is not hard, right? Think about it. If you were there and Jews come in and say, will you hide us? And you say yes. And then when the SS comes, you say, there they are. Who are you lying to now? Notice lying is really not the way the Ninth Commandment's put. You know what it says? Do not bear false witness against those you have a commitment to, which is the word neighbor in the Old Testament. You just committed to these Jews that you would protect them. Don't vote false with. You have no commitment to the SS. Sophie's Choice, you've probably seen that movie. It came out, I think, the year I graduated from high school. Remember what she had, what her choice was? Two, you've got two kids. One is going to go to a concentration camp. The other one's going to get exterminated right now. Which one do you want to go where? All things being equal, it would be bad for a mother to send her kid to a concentration camp, wouldn't it? Or allow that. Certainly would be bad for have their kid executed, but that's the only choice she had. She had to make a choice. If you remember in the movie, she thought maybe her son would have a better chance because of the way women were being treated in that regime. So she has her daughter, not has, she doesn't do it, but she says, I choose him to go to the concentration camp. Maybe we should pray every day that we never have to make those choices ourselves. The best way to look at this, and we're going to go through this very quickly, but in Romans 13, you have, it's pretty good for Independence Day. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, which tells us what rulers are supposed to do. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God as an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. But then here we have Peter and John answering the leaders of the day that says they can't preach Jesus, saying we're going to keep doing it because we must obey God rather than men. In the good sense of the term, they were practicing situational ethics. <laughs> if the regime, you look at that, they're supposed to reward good and punish evil. Well, if a government's not doing that, you're no longer bound by following it. And it's up to each individual person and the wisdom of the masses to figure out when do we rebel and when do we not. And we may sometimes regimes or people come together and they write documents that start like, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that we are endowed by our creator, created equal. We died by our creator to pursue happiness, to have liberty, to have life. I mean, this is situational ethics is what our country was founded on because they 
looked at this text, and I'm sure others have said it is a better thing to disobey Romans 13 than to disobey God. And each one has to make that own decision. I see a lot of red, white, and blue in here. I assume you're kind of pro, let's do that. But that's why they did it, folks. And that's why the apostles did it, because they must obey God. And you just have to use your own wisdom and the collective wisdom of others to do this. So the Bible's truth is objective. Jesus taught that all eternally relevant truth was not relative, but given by him, and that he gave what is sufficient. That, that statement you can take to the bank. That's what he thought. You don't need more books. You don't need more revelation. You don't need a voice from God to tell you what is true. You already have that. So we should keep these five simple things in mind. God has given objective moral truth to us. Every truth we embrace must not contradict the Bible. If we are to think like Jesus, we must commit to his truth. Every moral choice we make must reflect God's moral truths, even if we're on a dilemma. And we must be zealous for God's truth by using every opportunity to promote, defend, and teach it to others. Kind of worked out. This is kind of a good Independence Day sermon, isn't it? Sometimes, like they say, a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes. You know, we set these things up and it kind of works out sometimes. And next year, uh, Independence Day will be on the 4th, but it won't be on Sunday. So what do we do? For us, we must know the Bible intimately. Uh, you know, I've been saying that for years. Somebody told me before that, bugged the heck out of me. I finally started getting into it, and I, and I know a lot you do, but we can always do better, and I'm included in that. We must test supposed truths by and through God's word. We want to be like the Bereans, and we'll end with this. Now, these Bereans were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. These were Jews. They received the word with all eagerness, the word from Paul about Jesus, the new covenant information, examining the Old Testament scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Let us pray. Father, we, I guess, just ask forgiveness that we don't use the revelation you have to the extent that we should. I pray that each one of us uh, has a passion for your word, to know it, uh, has a passion to worship you, has a passion to serve you and pray to you, to rest on the promises that you've given us. We again thank you for freeing us through your son, freeing us from sin if we repent and follow you and put you first and for a place, a country to freely worship. 